Welcome to the American History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 19, Demographic Changes and the Industrial Revolution. Welcome to the American History Podcast. Hosted by Sean Morswick. Alright, hello everybody. Welcome back to the show. As always, I thank you for your support, which has been just amazing. Seriously, um, we're at 200,000 downloads, which to me is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, please remember to give us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to us. Um, those good reviews help other people find the show, and the more listeners we've got, the more fun we have. So before I get started today, I'm going to play a song for you. This one is an old one, although not as old as the ones we played last in the last episode. This one was written by Thomas S. Allen in 1905. It is called The Erie Canal Song. Now, I remember singing the song in music class way back in, oh, maybe fifth grade or so. And that was only, well, anyways, it doesn't matter how long ago that was, um, just a few weeks ago. Um, but the song is a wistful look back on the good old days, uh, seen, and seen as how it was written after mule power had been replaced by machine power and engine power, um, I thought this would be a good uh, song for today's episode. So anyway, here you go. Enjoy, and I'll see you on the other side. I've got an old mule and her name is Sal Fifteen years on the Erie Canal She's a good old worker and a good old pal Fifteen years on the Erie Canal We've hauled some barges in our day Filled with lumber, coal and hay And every inch of the way I know From Albany to Buffalo Low bridge, everybody down Low bridge, we must be getting near a town You can always tell your neighbor, you can always tell your pal If he's ever navigated on the Erie Canal We'd better look round for a job, old gal Fifteen years on the Erie Canal You bet your life I wouldn't part with Sal Fifteen years on the Erie Canal Get up there, gal, we pass that lock We'll make room for six o'clock One more trip and then we'll go Right straight back to Buffalo Low bridge, everybody down Low bridge, we must be getting near a town You can always tell your neighbor, you can always tell your pal If he's ever navigated on the Erie Canal Soon everyone will sing about my old Sal Fifteen years on the Erie Canal It's a catchy ditty about my old pal Fifteen years on the Erie Canal Oh, every band will play it soon Don Cool Words and Don Cool Tune You'll hear it sung everywhere you go From Mexico to Buffalo Low bridge, everybody down Low bridge, we must 
must be getting nearer town. You can always tell your neighbor, you can always tell your pal, if he's ever navigated on the Erie Canal. All right, so today we have a very fascinating topic, uh, or fascinating topic. Actually, to me, they're all fascinating. Um, but today we're going to be talking about demographic changes and the Industrial Revolution in the United States in the years leading up to the war with Mexico. Now, the United States was, according to some historians, undergoing major changes in its demographics. I don't dispute that to some extent, but in some ways I do. The idea of demographic change implies that at some point in the past, the United States was different, and in the 1830s and 40s, it was changing from that previous um, makeup. In reality, the United States was and continues um, to change. Constant change is kind of the, the theme. I get their point, but I do kind of disagree with the premise, so I, I just wanted to throw that out there, uh, let you kind of consider that and think about that. Um, what I do not disagree with was the idea that the population was growing. By 1860, the United States was made up of 33 states. The population in the years leading up to the Civil War was doubling about every 25 years, and that's, that's incredible. Now, there were two methods through which the country was increasing its population, the first being through natural birth rate and the second through immigration. Just to give you some statistics, in 1820, 1% of the population was foreign-born, but by 1860, 13% of it had been born outside the borders of the United States. Furthermore, by 1860, the United States was the fourth most populous Western country behind only Russia, France, and the Austrian Empire. Also of interest is that by 1860, 43 American cities had more than 20,000 people. In 1790, there were only two. So the result of this rapid urbanization was the creating of slums, crime, and filthy living conditions. Another important result of this change in demographics was that, during the 1840s and 50s, Americans continued to debate questions about rights and citizenship for various groups of people in the country. Who was a citizen? What rights did they have? This debate famously stemmed around Irish immigration. Now, as the grandson of an Irish immigrant, um, my dad's mom was from County Mayo, and I'm Sean Michael, and if there's a more Irish name than that, I don't know what it is. Um, but it, was, it wasn't only Irish immigrants. There were substantial numbers of immigrants coming to the United States from all over Europe and even from Asia to some extent, um, but they were, they were mainly from Ireland and Germany. But you did have immigrants from China, and um, they would settle in ethnic communities where they could preserve elements of their language and their culture and their customs. So let's talk about the Irish immigrants first. They were considered part of what some refer to as the old immigration. So if you're reading an American history textbook, um, you might see that term, old immigration. First, why were the Irish coming to America? Well, the Irish potato famine of the mid-1840s left about 2 million people dead in Ireland. Looking to leave the country and make a better life for themselves, about 2 million Irish immigrants came to the United States between the years of 1830 and 1860. Now, this made the Irish the largest single immigrant group in the United States, and it meant that, by 1860, more Irish people lived in the United States than lived in Ireland. The settle, they, um, they settled in the urban cities of the East first, 
as for the most part they couldn't afford to move uh, further west. Another aspect of the discrimination against the Irish was the fact that they were Catholic and often poor. They were often hated by the Protestants for taking over jobs as um, they were willing to work for lower wages. Uh, Interestingly, you hear the same argument today used against immigrants from, say, Mexico. So, as I often say, everything old is new again. Now, in turn, the Irish hated African Americans against whom they competed for low-wage jobs. And this would continue for decades and can even be seen in modern depictions of America um, that show the 1860s and 70s. Especially, um, you see that in the popular television series um, that used to be on AMC called Hell on Wheels. Anyway, um, race riots broke out between black and Irish dock workers in port cities, as again, the two sides were often competing for the same low-wage jobs. Needless to say, the Irish would be one group of people who would never support the abolitionist movement that would grow in power throughout the late 19th and early 20th century. And when I say that, I mean the Irish as a group. Obviously, you're going to probably get individuals who might have supported it. But as a group, the Irish are going to be pretty much um, against this whole idea. Now, eventually, the Irish would begin to climb the social ladder by buying property. Many Irish families would also not send their kids to school, and instead the kids would often work and help the families to try and purchase a home. Now, this wasn't all that uncommon in the 19th century, as most, if not all, Uh, Kids, especially those of poor families, did not attend school. I don't know if I've said it here much, but um, there really wasn't this idea of childhood that we have today. There will be in the wake of the Industrial Revolution as the country or as the society that's in question uh, becomes wealthier thanks to the Industrial Revolution. Um, But at this point in the United States, there really isn't this idea of childhood and uh, many children did not go to school. Um, partially, um, if not mostly, it was because it was economically impossible for the family to survive if their kids attended school. So you might ask, how did they eventually get to attend school? As I said, it's the Industrial Revolution. Thanks to the Industrial Revolution, capital accumulation would take place, and the society would become rich enough that families of even working and lower-class people would be able to survive without the income provided by working children. Now, I know there are some who think that the government simply passed a law and magically things improved. It doesn't work that way. Another way the Irish were able to improve their status was thanks to the fact that the Irish were politically involved. They came to control the political machines in many urban areas, including New York City's infamous Tammany Hall. Um, What's really interesting about Tammany Hall is that while it was associated with 19th century political corruption, It was actually founded uh, way back in 1786, and soon it was the Democratic Party's political machine, and it played a major role in controlling not only politics in New York City, but in New York State overall. Now, having said that, machines dominated politics in many big cities, as well as aspects of city government. So, for example, the police departments. Many of these political machines and their politicians courted the Irish vote by criticizing Britain whom the Irish hated. Eventually, the Irish would become a major force in the Democratic Party in the North. Now, a second important group of immigrants was from Germany. Uh, Also part of the so-called old immigration, Germans, uh, there was over 1.5 million Germans who came to America between 1830 and 1860. 
By 1900, the Germans would become the largest group of immigrants, and today about 20% of all Americans have German ancestry. These people were often uprooted farmers, uh, many of whom had been displaced by crop failures in Europe. Now, unlike the Irish, many of them did not settle in the urban areas of the East Coast. Instead, they moved to the Midwest, um, for example, Wisconsin, where they built successful farms. While they did, um, they did form an influential body of voters, they were less politically influential than the Irish due to their geographically scattered um, settlement patterns. Another difference between the Irish and the Germans, um, and truthfully, uh, in this regard, they differed from American society as a whole, was the fact that they were better educated than the average frontier uh, living American. They also, and we're speaking about the Germans, they also supported the idea of public schooling, including kindergarten. Another aspect of German culture that they brought over with them was the beer culture, an important aspect of German culture overall. Now, this would hurt the temperance movement as it was another large block of people who would not be in support of, of their cause. The Germans in the years prior to abolition were strongly in favor of ending slavery, um, so that makes them different from the Irish. And finally, not surprisingly, Protestant Americans were concerned that German culture might change American culture. Another criticism was um, that the Germans often lived in their own towns and they remained separated from other towns. Now, another element of immigration was English immigration. After 1820, thousands of English immigrants arrived in the United States. In fact, they accounted for almost 20% of the total immigrants from 1820 to 1860. Many of them were leaving behind um, difficult agricultural conditions and they were attempting, like the Germans, to remain in that sector. The English immigrants who had skills in things like the textile industry um, tended to settle in Massachusetts, which was famous for producing textiles. Um, people from Cornwall came to work the mines in places like Illinois, Wisconsin, and Michigan. And unlike the German or the Irish immigrants, English immigrants, they faced far less discrimination than their counterparts. So what was the result of all this? By the 1840s, the rise of nativist movements began. What is nativism? This is a hatred for a, and a fear of foreigners and all things foreign. Perhaps you could say that Donald Trump is a nativist, although I think um, aspects of his politics um, or this aspect of his politics is something I think he plays up and um, just trying to take advantage of some late, of, of latent nativist fears amongst modern Americans. Um, but be that as it may, uh, the intense level of Irish and German immigration offended and worried many Protestant nativists. They feared immigrants would overpopulate and unduly influence politics. Many people in the United States, most of whom were Protestants, viewed the Irish and a large portion of the Germans, who were Catholic, as a threat. They saw the Catholic Church as a foreign church, uh, one that was controlled by the Pope. And this led Catholics to sort of create a society within a society, uh, going so far as to even construct a separate parochial educational system within the United States. By the 1850s, Catholics had become the largest religious group in America, outnumbering Baptists, Methodists, Presbyterians, and Congregationalists. All of these changes led to the creation in 1849 of the extreme nativist party called the Know-Nothing Party. It was also known as the Native American Party and the American Party. They wanted to restrict immigration and naturalization, as well as to create laws to deport aliens. You even had episodes of mass violence in some of the larger cities. Uh, believe it or not, by the mid-1850s, 
the Know-Nothings were extremely influential and were even on the verge of replacing the Whigs as the second of the two major parties. Okay, so one of the things I would like to cover is the Industrial Revolution in the United States prior to the Civil War. This is sometimes referred to as the First Industrial Revolution. During this first phase, um, the innovations were centered around textiles, railroads, iron, and coal. Later, during the so-called Gilded Age, the revolution was focused mostly around railroads, oil, steel, and electricity. So if you remember back to our episode on slavery, Eli Whitney is created, or credited with the invention of the cotton gin. This, is, uh, this particular invention would be useful in the textile industry, albeit in a roundabout sort of way. The cotton gin was up to 50 times more effective in cleaning cotton than if you had to do it by hand. Now, this, of course, meant that workers were more productive. And also, thanks to Eli Whitney in the late 1790s, you get the introduction of interchangeable parts, which would be widely adopted by the 1850s. And so this is uh, the basis of modern mass production and assembly line methods that are used throughout um, various industries. Whitney, for what it's worth, would also go on to mass-produce muskets for the U.S. Army. But he wasn't the only one getting the Industrial Revolution started in the United States. A man named Samuel Slater, known as the father of the factory system, uh, because he built the first cotton spinning machine in America, the Spinning Jenny. Um, He was born in England, where he lived up until about the age of 21, and then he immigrated to the United States and he was able to recreate British industrial technology here in America. So this would earn him the title, amongst the British, um, of Slater the Traitor. In the United States, again, he was called the father of the factory system. Um, but by the time of his death in 1835, he was worth the modern-day equivalent of about $35 million, and he owned 13 mills. Now, industrialization really gets kicked off in the United States around the time of the War of 1812. Um, The war and President Jefferson's Embargo Act of 1807 dramatically decreased the number of goods that were imported into the United States from abroad. This caused a demand for locally produced textiles and led Francis Cabot Lowell to build the first dual-purpose textile plant in Waltham, Massachusetts in 1814. Before Lowell, factories, for the most part, spun thread. Um, Lowell's factory spun the fiber and wove the finished cloth. And so the significance of this is that the United States, um, in the United States, work began to move out of the home and into factories, which is an essential aspect of the Industrial Revolution. The production of cloth in factories meant workers were more productive. Uh, it also meant that they produced more of any given item, and thus the price fell and society was enriched. In 1823, Lowell's partners, the Boston Associates, built a new plant in Lowell, Massachusetts, Um, Now, textile factories started to spring up all over New England and in the mid-Atlantic states in the 1830s and in the 1840s. Eventually, the Boston Associates dominated textile, railroad, insurance, and the banking industries throughout the state of Massachusetts. So how is this important to the story of the U.S. war with Mexico? Well, the United States, by the time of the conflict, was not fully industrialized, but the effects of industrialization had definitely begun to be felt. The economy of the United States was far more advanced than that of Mexico, and this meant that, in the end, Mexico was fighting an uphill battle against a more developed, economically speaking, country. All right, so that is all for this episode. Um, Right now we're at the 20-minute mark. 
Amazingly, I hit the target. What do you know? Um, our next episode is um, going to cover the election of 1844 and take us to the eve of the war with Mexico. Um, as always, I thank you very much for your kind support. Um, really, thank you very much. Please share the podcast with friends, family mem- members, neighbors, um, anyone who enjoys history and learning. Feel free to follow me on Twitter at American Hiscast. Also, please um, feel free to send me an email and just say hello or ask me a question. The email is sean at the American History Podcast. Until next time, good day.